0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and it's great to have your company. Well, later on the show, a trifecta of America's crises. Now, there's a health crisis sparked by COVID-19 an economic crisis caused by the government-led recession to stem the virus, and now a race crisis caused by mounting evidence of police brutality against African Americans. What does all this tell us about American politics in this election year and public discourse in the land of the free? Nicole Hemmer from Columbia University and The Washington Post's Henry Olsen. They join me. Stay with us for that. But first, to China. A few weeks ago, China imposed an 80% tariff on Australian barley and banned beef exports from some parts of Australia. Last week, Beijing sent a travel advisory. The message was that Australia was a risky place to visit. And This week, the rhetoric from Beijing stepped up another notch with the Chinese Education Bureau warning its students to be wary of racism in Australia. So has the COVID pandemic added a new dimension to the relationship with Beijing, or is it just igniting issues that have been simmering away for a while now? Well, joining me to discuss these issues is the Victorian Labor Senator, Kimberley Kitching. Kimberley became a Senator in 2016, replacing Labor's Stephen Conroy, and this week she became the Australian co-chair with Liberal MP Andrew Hastie of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. Kimberly, welcome to
2: RN. Thank you very much, Tom. It's, it's good to be on your program.
1: Well, let's go to trade first. Trade Minister Simon Birmingham, he can't even get his opposite number in China to take his calls. What's going on here? Surely it's more than just retaliation for the COVID inquiry.
2: Look, I think... Obviously, relationships are a two-way street and people know that if you don't talk issues through, if you don't listen carefully, then things can get very messy and sometimes very quickly. So I think it does need to be a two-way street. Obviously, if um, Simon Birmingham has been phoning or the department has been phoning, then we obviously also would expect those calls be answered.
1: Okay, now we're at the start of the worst recession in decades. Do you think Beijing is expecting that the economic relationship during this pandemic, that'll force Australia to change course? Are they trying to intimidate us into changing course and bowing to China?
2: I think that that kind of economic coercion isn't probably going to work. You know, one of the things, obviously, we export to China is iron ore. Iron ore's hit north of $100 US, a tonne uh, in the uh, Federal budget table of assumptions. It's at about half of that. So we're doing very well out of our iron ore exports to China. So I don't think the re- having a recession in Australia is going to affect the way we deal uh, with with trade issues.
1: What about beef exports? Because it's interesting that China's ban that they've come from Queensland, WA, New South Wales, but not from your home state, Victoria. Why do you think that's the case?
2: Agreements entered into by the Victorian government. Didn't really protect uh, protect those those farmers. So what I can say to you, Tom, is that i don't I'm not sure that the memorandum of understanding that the Victorian government entered into on the BRI or the second agreement they entered into late last year are uh, necessarily protective of um victorian farmers as we've seen the belt
1: and road initiative jeff raby former ambassador to china past guest on this program he says uh, kimberly that there's no harm in victoria's deal with china and he points out that there are no legal moral or other treaty level binding obligations in the deal he says basically that canberra should just jump on board and sign up to the belt and road initiative as well what are your what are your thoughts
2: uh, look, I, I have been public about this. I don't think the Victorian government should have entered into those agreements. I think if you're doing foreign policy, you want all of your ducks pointing in the same direction, and I think that, um, you know, that what's happening is that Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party are using mm-hmm. the Victorian Belt and Road Initiative Memorandum of Understanding and the second agreement that was entered into as a propaganda piece. Because what we have seen, Tom, in other countries around the world is that the Belt and Road initiatives are being used and unfortunately creating debt traps for some countries. We don't want that happening and we don't want it happening really in our neighbourhood.
1: You're listening to Between the Lines on ABC Radio National. I'm Tom Switzer and my guest is Senator Kimberly Kitching. Now, Kimberly this week marks the one-year anniversary of the Hong Kong democracy protests. Hard to believe uh, 12 months gone quickly. Now, they garnered enormous global sympathy for Hong Kong. It really seemed like the international concern for Hong Kong had forced Beijing to to temper its reaction to the protests, but then came the pandemic, George Floyd's death in the United States, Black Lives Matter protests. And while the world was distracted in early June, China cracked down. So the question here is, is this the end of the one country, two systems in Hong Kong?
2: Well, I think if you're removing what we would consider basic rights, it will become a criminal offence, uh, to To denigrate the anthem of China, for example, we would consider that a, a sort of a, a right that we could have some say over you know whether we protest what we think. Um, you know, the freedom of thought, freedom of press, these are all what we would consider basic tenets of democratic society. China entered into an arrangement, entered into a treaty obligation, and this is a direct breach of that obligation they themselves undertook. And I don't think you just get to change your mind about these things. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's interesting that when you think back that China, mainland China would say to Taiwan, you know, because obviously there's a view in mainland China to um, reintegrate Taiwan or to to have a uh, Taiwan part of China again, they would point to Hong Kong and say, look, you've got nothing to worry about. But in fact, what we're seeing in Hong Kong is actually, I think, creating fear in other parts of the world. And I think that it may well be the end of one country, two systems.
1: Okay, now, less than a week after China cracked down in Hong Kong, a brand new international organisation was launched. This is the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. Now, the group was founded by the former UK Conservative Party leader, Ian Duncan-Smith, past guest on this program. Uh, But it unites politicians from across the political spectrum. Now, you and Liberal MP Andrew Hastie, you're the Australian co-chairs. What are your aims?
2: Well, our aims are to make sure that our values, our rule-based order is protected. There's a great desire amongst the group to examine human rights issues. I think Western liberal democracies probably hoped that China was heading down a more liberal and democratic path. But I think when President Xi became president in 2013, I think that became a fainter and fainter hope. And I think that what we're seeing in the in the interparliamentary alliance on china is a desire from member countries to ensure that when dealing with china when when thinking of china to ensure that the global rules-based order is maintained And that, and I I, think the critics
1: of this group they might say that a committee ostensibly formed to counter China that may only escalate tensions between China and the rest of the world. How would you respond to them?
2: I think what it's done, and I think what coronavirus has done, it's because this isn't about legislators, this is also about people in Australia, people in Canada, the UK, the US and the other countries that have joined this this parliamentary alliance. Those people are also concerned. So, you know, there's a great deal of concern here and I think there was some anger about protective equipment being taken out of Australia and sent to China by companies such as Greenland and RISLAND. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of people who might think maybe we need... More reliable supply chains, maybe we should make um, more things here in Australia. and I think in the UK there's been a, a, an increasing awareness, for example of having Huawei in their in their system. What we know is that there's been breaches of the parliamentary systems by a state actor, a sophisticated state actor. we know I can tell you that the ipAC website, for example, has been subjected to cyber hacking in the last few days uh, on a number of occasions
1: former prime minister paul keating uh, the distinguished singaporean intellectual kishore mabubani they've argued over the years that china's rise is not all that surprising all great powers um, they start to flex their muscles They, they as their definition of national interests grows their economic power increases they start to seek a sphere of influence in areas on which its future security and prosperity depend. And then you've got commentators like the historian James Curran. They say that this China threat rhetoric has morphed into a paranoid red scare syndrome that has the hallmarks of a crusade. How would you respond to Keating, Marble Barney and Curran?
2: Well, I would note that James Curran is at Sydney University, an institution very dependent on full fee paying students. But on the substance of what he said, it's you know, I think it is good uh, to have awareness of how a country operates. I don't think you know we can bury our heads in the sand. I would say, Tom, though, that Paul Keating, despite uh, you know that he has a view, but he did say uh, last year that Huawei shouldn't be allowed into our um, either into our for um, into our NBN or into our five G network. Mm. So I think that most commentators are aware that we should. Be, you know when we're in arrangements with China that that should be with our eyes open. And I think that when you see critics who just say, "Oh, it's just a red scare," all that says to me is that is very simplistic language, and people not actually wanting to engage with the substance of an issue.
1: Kimberly, great to have you on ABC Radio.
2: Thank you very much for having me on, Tom. it's been great. Thank
1: you. Senator Kimberly Kitching is the Australian co-chair with Andrew Hastie of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China.
0: This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer.
1: Well, what a time in American history. Protesters across major American cities are decrying police brutality and systemic racism. The coronavirus has killed nearly 110,000 people in the US, Millions of people are out of work, and oh, did I mention an election? Yes, right. In November, Americans head to the polls to vote for the president. The incumbent, Donald Trump, or the Democrat challenger, Joe Biden. Now, to assess the race, and to put the health, economic, race challenges in a broader political context, let's hear two views from America. Nicole Hemmer is an Associate Research Scholar with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project. That's at Columbia University in New York. And Henry Olson is a Washington Post columnist and a Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre in Washington. Nikki, Henry, welcome back to RN. Thanks for having
3: Thank us, Tom. Thanks for having
1: us. Well, first to the protests. Now, is this a different moment? I mean, we've seen moments of protest in the past in response to police brutality and killings. And Nikki, what's different this time?
0: So I think what's different is, it's hard to say like all of the factors that are, are thrown into it, but there was a spark that happened with the, um, the death of George Floyd. And suddenly you have not only just protests at the site where the murder happened, but across the country and not just in big cities, but in, in small towns and in suburbs. It's a it's a very different kind of multiracial, extended series of protests that we just haven't seen on this scale. I mean, certainly not since 1968, but probably longer than that.
1: Yeah, well, Nikki's not alone. Henry, do you think there will be real change coming out of what we're seeing?
3: Well, I think there'll be real change. The question is whether it's going to be sufficient and whether it's going to be widespread, you know, that police violence has been decreasing over the last few years. The problem is it's still too high, but it's not a problem that has moved, not moved at all since the murder of, uh, of African-Americans in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 started more recent than 1968 look at police violence and racial inequality. So I think movement will happen, but the question is whether it'll be enough.
1: And how does this affect the election this year? I mean, if you tend to forget this, it seems to me a a trifecta. You've got a health crisis, you've obviously got a looming economic crisis, and you've got these racial problems. Uh, To what extent has that helped or or does it hinder Trump's re-election prospects, Nicole?
0: So that's really difficult to tell. I mean, one thing that we know from the last Three or four months is that there's so much volatility and unpredictability in American politics right now. Now, I I would say that at the moment, both of these crises seem to be hurting President Trump. He um, is lagging behind Joe Biden in a number of different national polls. He's losing ground in some important swing states. So it seems as though this is becoming a real crisis for Trump's reelection. But, you know, think about how much life has changed in just a few months. It's really difficult to try to sort of figure out what's going to be happening five months from now.
1: Yeah, but if you look at all the available public polling evidence, I mean, uh, it does show that Trump has severely damaged his credibility. You've got an NPR PBS poll that finds disapproval of Trump's performance. It's near an all-time high, 47%. He's losing independent voters. The real clear average politics uh, average uh, this is the average of all the recent polls it has Joe Biden leading nationally by 8 points i was also struck henry by a wall street journal nbc survey showing that fully 80% of voters believe that things are out of control henry does all this mean trump is doomed in november
3: i don't think trump is doomed but he's clearly starting with a very large hill to climb the fact is Because of our system, Donald Trump does not need to win the popular vote. He just needs to lose it by a small enough margin that his coalition's geographic centrality in certain states will allow him to win the Electoral College. Basically, he needs to lose by three to four percentage points to have a good shot at winning the Electoral College. He hasn't been that close uh, for most of the last year, and the last few weeks have sent him in the wrong direction. It's a very large hole to try and climb out of in a short period of time.
1: Yeah, but some pundits uh, say that Trump will use the Nixonian tactic of linking the Democrats to crime and disorder because, remember, go back to 1968, chaos helped drive... Uh, voters away from the Democrats, could history repeat itself? Nikki,
0: you know, there's a few reasons to suspect that even though Donald Trump is trying that, he has been um, banging his fist on law and order for um, the past several months. Um, that it might not work for him. And for one thing, he's the incumbent. Um, to decry lawlessness and disorder when you're the person running the country it is a difficult case to make. That to say that if you're reelected, you can make it better. I think it's it's a problem for him and on that front, but also because he can't quite land his message right now. I mean, he is saying things about law and order and supporting the police, um, but at the same time, he points to Joe Biden and says, well, Joe Biden signed the 1994 crime bill, um, which many Black Americans and other liberal Americans really dislike. Um, But if you're saying that he's both tough on crime and soft on crime, you've got a really muddled message.
1: What about those escalating calls, particularly at the city council level and across uh, state legislatures? These are Democrat states like Minnesota. What about these escalating calls to, say, defund the police? Uh, Henry, will that help drive voters to Trump, especially if there's an outbreak of further violence?
3: Well, Biden is very wisely uh, separating himself from those calls. But you should never underestimate the opportunity for the Democratic hard left to Spoil the chances of the Democratic center-left to win an election, Uh, but I think the analogies to 1968 are overblown because 1968 was the fifth consecutive year of urban riots. That this happened in '67, it happened in '66, it happened in '65. You had the Civil Rights Act and urban uh, disruption in 1964. It was the culmination of years of disorder that made 68 such a breaking point. We're not there, we're not going to be there. And as Nikki pointed out, Trump's ability to communicate is vastly inferior to that of Richard Nixon's.
1: Okay, let's let's return to this issue of systemic racism. We hear a lot about this and the overwhelming consensus among Uh, left liberal lawmakers in Minnesota and elsewhere, and these are the words of the governor in Minnesota, this is Tim Waltz, a Liberal Democrat, systemic racism, quote, must be addressed if we are to secure justice, peace and order for all Minnesotans. You're hearing this across the United States, in fact, you're hearing this across the world, but just stick with Minnesota. Historically, it is a very left-wing state. It's the political home of Vice Presidents Hubert Humphrey, Walter Mondale. The state has not voted Republican since 1972. Even Ronald Reagan, and Henry, you've written a lot about Reagan, he could not carry it in 1984 when he won every other state in the union. Nikki, some listeners are entitled to ask, how is it systemic racism? How is it that this permeates a blue state dominated by liberal Democrats?
0: So I think that actually underscores how systemic these racist structures are, because even though you have Democrats running the state and progressive Democrats and racially progressive Democrats, they've found it very difficult to reform policing in ways that would cause it to have more balanced um, results. And that's true here in New York as well. New York is a, um, is run by a democratic governor, but just recently under the lockdown orders, Out in Brooklyn, um, they arrested 40 people for violating social distancing, and 35 of them were African American. And that kind of discrimination and outcome um, signals that there's something deeper that's happening in the laws and in the policing that leads to these kind of unequal results. And in Minneapolis, they've tried quite hard to institute reforms, but they've run up against police unions, they've run up against um, police officers pushing back against reforms and budget cuts, and just have had a really difficult time changing those systems in order to reform policing there.
1: Institutional racism Henry, is it as widespread across the United States as the conventional wisdom suggests?
3: No, I don't believe that. I believe we've made massive strides on racism, and uh, I believe we've made uh, massive strides on prejudice as well. The if re- institutional racism pervades the Minneapolis Police Department, then you can either have it one of two ways: either the racism is something that is independent of political persuasion, or it's something that is incredibly difficult to eradicate using public power. Uh, the Democratic party's response is that it is politically tilted towards conservatives and republicans and that it's relatively easy to uh do it or not not easy doable in a short period of time through the use of public power. The evidence backs neither assertion.
1: Henry Olson in Washington is the author of The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue Collar Conservatism. And Nicole Hemmer in New York, she's author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics. Now, there were some surprisingly good economic results just in the last week. The US job market um, has grown faster than it expected as the lockdowns ease. Um, and, of course, you've got talk now on Wall Street uh, that this could be a V-shaped recovery. To the extent that's true, does that help... Trump significantly heading into November, or or is it still likely America will face uh, some very rough economic times ahead? Nicole? So,
0: I do think that as the economy improves, that helps Donald Trump. Um, We're still talking about, we should say, like 16% adjusted unemployment, which is a really high high number, kind of thing we haven't seen in decades. Mm. Um, So, you'd have to see a a much greater recovery, and you would have to see it sort of spread across the country. There are going to be some industries, including places like the restaurant industry, that across the country are going to suffer as they try to ramp back up. And if a second wave hits, then that's a whole other story in terms of the economy. But yes, as the economy improves, that's going to help Donald Trump. The economy is far and away the strongest thing he has going for him. And it's the thing that wins him the most support.
1: Not everyone cheered the upbeat US jobs report, Henry. Paul Krugman, he's a left-wing economist at the New York Times, he said, this being the Trump era, we can't completely discount the possibility that they've gotten to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. (laughs) Now, the BLS, of course, uh, it has a staff of something like 2,500 career staff that got enormous credibility. What does all this tell us about how partisan and polarising the media have become in the Trump era? Henry?
3: Most of the media is incredible. Part, incredibly partisan and polarized. And that's particularly true in the opinion pages, which is where Mr. Krugman is. It's, uh, I try and uh, write uh, balanced articles in the sense that I both criticize Trump and uh, give him credit for things I think he's doing right. Uh, virtually nobody operates that. Uh, it's either Trump's always right or it's Trump's always wrong. And everything is viewed through those lenses and the facts become unrecognizable to people who uh, are actually relying on these uh, these pundits because it is all argued to make a point and never is a deviation from the main point allowed.
1: Nikki, you've studied a lot about conservative media and how polarizing it's become. This goes both ways, it goes beyond left and right. How do you account for the toxic polarizing nature of the American media these days? Is it is Trump to you blame know, simply or is, or is it more complicated?
0: It's definitely more complicated. I mean, I think that Donald Trump has metastasized some of those trends that we've seen in American media over the past several decades. But I mean, there has been a growing divide between conservative media and the established media for decades now. But particularly in the past 10 to 15 years, there's been a growing divide not only in terms of perspectives on politics, but as Henry was saying, on, on facts themselves, right? When, when there is no real agreement on the nature of reality, that's going to create <laughs> just a, you know, a world in which people can't have disagreement, they can't have conversation because you, they don't agree just on the basic facts on the ground. And that has been one of the major drivers of some of this toxicity that you're talking about.
1: Well, let me conclude on this note, given all of this toxic polarization, given the, uh, you know, all the political dysfunction we've talked about on this program over the years, uh, all the divisions in Washington, given this recent crisis, that health, racial, economic, um, are you an optimist or a pessimist about America, Henry?
3: I would like to be an optimist, uh, but what I That have was to a long pause, by a... the way. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a very depressing time, you know, and it's not just conservative media, you know, that I've watched MSNBC and I get MSNBC emails and you get as distorted view of the world through progressive mm. media as you get by watching Fox 24-7. You know, it's kind of like the documentary Supersize Me, where if somebody eats McDonald's for every single meal, he becomes overweight and <laughs> violently ill. If you're watching news through one of these partisan channels, you're becoming (laughs) violently ill and violently partisanized because that's what you're being presented with. Um, And it's very difficult to see how optimism has a rational basis when increasingly people see their fellow Americans as others and something less than people.
1: And no question that in, in in recent times the Republican Party, the centre of gravity, has shifted to the populist right, while the Democrats have lurched to the left. But Joe Biden, uh, it's fair to say, he's a pretty centrist type of character, maybe centre left, but he certainly doesn't really uh, indulge the extremes of either party. Uh, finally, Nicole, given that Biden has a pretty decent chance of winning the election in November. To what extent is that grounds for optimism in your judgment?
0: So Biden is an interesting politician, precisely for the reasons you say. He has this kind of broader-based appeal, um, which I would say would be a source of optimism in some ways. The idea that you could rally um, a larger majority of the country behind a, a politician, that a politician could actually be popular. I'm not sure, though, that that's what we're going to see. I mean, I think that there are so many political and cultural forces in the country that will kind of snap back to the kinds of polarization we've seen, not just in the Trump administration, but under the Obama administration, that it's hard to see the election of Joe Biden being this sort of um, event that resets everything and and gets everyone to get along again. Um, So I'm optimistic, I would say long term, um, but I don't mm. think that this election is going to put everything back on the right
1: path. So normal programming may not resume anytime soon. Nikki, Henry, it's great to have you back on ABC Radio. Thanks, Thanks for having me. me. Nicole Hemmer is an Associate Research Scholar with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project. That's at Columbia University in New York. And Henry Olson, is a Washington Post columnist. He's a Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre in Washington. Well, that's it for the program. And remember, if you'd like to listen to past episodes, just go to abc.net.au slash RN and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. It's always great to have your company and I hope you can tune in again next week.